tonight talking about dreams and nightmares uh, in Jewish tradition. Uh, first, a word of warning. Uh, I think we have a tendency to uh, a tendency towards magical thinking. What I mean by that is many of us in the religious community, especially, have a tendency to see magic when there isn't. And to want to believe, we, we, we sometimes admittedly get a little superstitious. Uh, and uh, anything that you catch on to, right, was, oh, look at that, that was amazing. Like dreams, for example, is a classic case. So I thought it might be a good idea, I just want to mention, this is from a book called Anomalistic Psychology, a Study of Magical Thinking, wonderful book by Zusni and Friedman. Uh, they talk about the uh, phenomenon that people often discuss, which is, you know what, I haven't thought about this person for a year, for two years. I, I, I thought about him today, something sparked off a memory about him today, and then I opened up the newspaper and I saw that he died, or that he was uh, awarded, a, awarded some honour, or whatever. You know, there was, you see that person in the newspaper, or that he died immediately, has that, that ever happened to anyone? Like, you haven't thought about someone for ages, and then bingo, right, like a day, the same day, or a few hours later, you see this person's name uh, in, in, in a newspaper article, you heard on the radio or something like that. So they do a statistical analysis here. Let's um, say the following. In other words, what is the probability of a coincidental recollection of a person in a five-minute period just before learning of that person's death? Can we calculate that probability? He says, yeah, we actually can. Let's say, on average, an average person recognises the names of how many people? How many people's names do you think you recognise? They say about 3,000. I mean, probably a low estimate, right? You probably recognise more than three, but 3,000 people's names. Okay, so now, um, what's the... Uh, we assume that the subject, let's say, will learn of the death of one of these people sometime in 30 years. And we're assuming that you only think about the person once in a 30-year period, which is actually a low estimate, right? Probably you probably think about people more than once in a 30-year period. So he says this: the ratio of a five-minute interval to a 30-year interval, five minutes to a 30-year, is three by ten to the minus seven. Okay, the probability that you'll have such an experience of learning of the death of one of the 3,000 recognizable, recognizable names is, clear, is 10 to the minus 3 in a 30-year period, or about 3 by 10 to the minus 5 per year. If we take a sample of adults in the United States of about 10 to the power of 8, then there are probably about 3,000 of these experiences of that sort that happen per year, or about 10 per day. In other words, over the course of the United States, about 10 people a day will think of someone about five minutes within hearing of their death, purely by coincidence. In other words, just by chance, that'll happen. So, now what happens is, and for the average person, 3,000 recognisable is probably an overestimate. Could be you, you, you have less than that, I'm not sure. Uh, but also, uh, once in 30 years, a little low. So we probably have a reasonable estimate. And, you should point, and I should point out, the only ones that actually get reported are when you do actually remember someone and then five minutes later hear about their death. But what about the people you remember then five minutes later you don't hear anything about them? They don't get reported. 
Right? People always report the wow stories, but you never hear about the stories. Or the duh stories, right? Or the uh, stories, right? You only hear about the wow stories, right? So what happens is we have a skewed belief about this type of stuff. The same is, same is true with dreams, right? People have this idea that the precognitive dreams, the idea that they predicted something in their dream, the thing happened, etc., etc. So there was actually a, uh, two scientists, psychologists, in 1937 did an experiment. You probably are aware that Charles Lindbergh the famous pilot and anti-Semite, um, his, um, his baby was uh, kidnapped and eventually killed. Uh, so um, about uh, a few days after the kidnapping, uh, these two uh, psychologists sent out, uh, asked for put newspaper ads, to ask people to send in what their dream said about where the child was. If the child was alive, if they were dead, where they were, if they were buried, etc., etc., etc. So he got... 1,300 uh, dreams. People sent in 1,300 dreams. Only 5% of those dreams said that the baby was dead. Even though at that time it was definitely determined the baby had, had, was already dead at that time. And of the actual dreams, of the 1,300 dreams, um, 4 said the baby was dead and it was buried in the ground. And there was a grave amongst trees. So four out of 1,300. Now, I'm sure those four people, when they found out later, they were very impressed with themselves. But the fact is, if you've got 1,300 and four of them are right, that could be meaningless. Right, sheer coincidence. Right, so you have to realize that these type of experiences, very often we read too much into them. Uh, there's a scam which is uh, out there, one of these email scams, uh, where uh, a little more sophisticated than you've got money in a bank in Nigeria, uh, but not much more. Right, uh, they send out, let's say, to 10,000 people, they send out a stock market prediction. And 5,000 of them get a prediction that the particular stocks are going up, and 5,000 get a prediction the stocks are going down, and these people are asked to write back if the prediction was correct. Guess what happens? So out of the 5,000, a lot of them don't necessarily write back, but a couple of thousand of those 5,000 write back, yeah, it was correct. Then those 2,000, let's say, that wrote back got a correct prediction, they then send 1,000 of them another prediction up, and the other 1,000 a prediction that will go down. And they asked to write back. So now there's a thousand people who've already had two correct answers from these people. And they write back, yeah, cool, you're right twice. They then, they then, so they've now got, let's say, 500 suckers. So now of the 500 suckers, they send out 250 reports that a third stock is going up, 250 that is going down. Now the 250 people who got it right, who got the correct report, will say, this is amazing. Three times these people have accurately predicted... Right? The stocks, right? That's it. They've got my investment. And they do get their investment, and that's it. And they're out of, they're, they're, they're out of pocket. So, uh, why am I mentioning this? Because there is a mitzvah in the Torah called Tamim Tihir Im Hashem Elokecha. You shall be wholesome or complete with the Lord your God. That is to say, you're not supposed to look into the future. You're not supposed to practice divination, sorcery, witchcraft, 
etc., etc., apparition, all that type of stuff, which are spells, etc., a la Harry Potter and Hogwarts. Right? Well, it's okay to read about it, but we're not supposed to actually do it. Right? Tamim Tiyem Hashem Lokecha means the idea that uh, Hashem already gave us uh, the Torah, and the Torah has the instructions, moral, ethical, psychological, sociological instructions of how to lead a good life and how to create a good world. Right? And that doesn't involve those instructions already given to us. So the idea that I would maybe know the future, figure out something about the future, that is, should not be taken into account. However, dreams are nevertheless significant. Not because of the precognitive component, not because they may be predictors of prophecy, etc., although we'll talk about that as well, but for other reasons. So that's a little bit of a, I just some, some, some heffalumps and woozles, beware, beware, as Winnie the Pooh says, right? A little, a few cautionary statements about dreams before we actually get there. Okay. Now, the Talmud asks interesting question. The Talmud asks that, that one place the Torah says, Hachalamot, Shav Yedaberu, which means literally, the dreams speak of vanity, falsehood. They're meaningless. And there's another statement where the Torah says, last week's Torah reading, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, where the Torah says, Bachalom Adaber Bo, that a prophet I will speak to in a dream. So one statement seems to say that, well, dreams are major. God speaks to prophets in dreams. And the other statement says, ah, a bunch of rubbish. No, loose translation. Right? So the Talmud uh, distinguishes and it says one is when the dream is via an angel. The other when it's via a shade. Now there's many interpretations of what that means, but I think what it means is the following. There are going to be some dreams, some dreams, which are kernels of prophecy. You know, the Talmud goes through a few statements, the Gemara in Brochus, it's also Medrash, it says that fire is one-sixtieth of hell, honey is one-sixtieth of man, Shabbat is one-sixtieth of the world to come, sleep is one-sixtieth of death, and dreams are one-sixtieth of prophecy. What is the meaning of one-sixtieth? So as you all know, probably, if you've learned a little bit about the laws of Kashrut, kosher laws, you will know that there is such a thing as if a non-kosher food falls into kosher food, right, accidentally uh, is introduced to kosher food, hello, I'd like to introduce it here as Cholent, that type of thing, right, it comes into the kosher food, then if the volume of kosher food is more than 60 times the non-kosher, it is considered batel, it is, halachically speaking, non-existent. Don't have to worry about it. That's if it's assuming it's not spicy, sour, uh, salty or a, an entire bit, whatever, there's lots of exceptions. But the basic rule is that, that it's, it's, it's considered annulled if it's more than 1 in 60. If it's less, in other words, if there is uh, more than 1 60th of one part non-kosher to 60 parts kosher, not kosher. If there's less than 1 60th, it is kosher. Which means if we describe something as 1 60th of something else, what that means is it's, th- it's just, just there on the threshold of existence. You know what I mean? We're saying it's, it's there. It's detectable. It's not quite, it's not quite there, but it's, it's just about there. You understand what we're saying? In other words, like sleep being one sixtieth of death is exactly, I, I think I mentioned I had a roommate who was a third of death, right? There's no question, right? But, but for most of us, sleep is a sixtieth of death, right? And the idea of a sixtieth of death is there's a little bit of a taste 
Like you can taste the pork in the top, right? You can taste death in sleep. There's a, there's a, there's a component of it. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we wash our hands when we wake up in the morning. Because uh, we have experienced a little bit a taste of death. Uh, because, because sleep is a time when my actions, which is what the hands symbolize, are not under the control of free will. They are under the control of the physical. And so it's a case where the physical has overpowered the spiritual. And so whenever we have the physical overpowering the spiritual, like death, for example, like sleep, for example, then we have tum'ah, impurity. So that's the, that's the basic idea. So when we have one-sixtieth, that's what it means. So it says prophecy is one-sixth, or dreams are one-sixtieth of prophecy. Maimonides, in the Guide for the Perplexed, Moreh Hanavuchim, he says the following. He says, first of all, you should be aware that when the rabbis say that a dream is a sixtieth of prophecy, he says it's not appropriate to make comparisons between things that are not related. It was, you know, it was, when we talk about sleep and death, because there's a relationship between sleep and death, the, the, the lack of the soul uh, taking control, the lack of consciousness, there's a comparison. When we talk about something being a 60th of something, you, that, that obviously must be related. She says, evidently in that sense, dreams, or the concept of dreams, has got to be related somehow to prophecy. Otherwise, why would you compare the two? She says, uh, for two reasons. The first reason he gives is the following, that prophecy works through the power of the imagination. God manipulates the images of the prophet's mind in order to create a message. That's true with all prophets except for Moses. Moses was direct, very clear, uh, immediately uh, cognizant of what God was saying, like a person speaking to another person. However, right, with other prophets, God was taking images in their mind and shaping them into a message. For example, when God tells Jeremiah, Yeremiah the prophet, that there's going to be danger coming from the north of Israel, right? He does not show him a compass or a GPS, right? What he shows him is, Sir Nafuach, right? He sees a boiling cauldron with its lip facing the north, right? That's an indication of trouble, an indication. That's because that was an image in the mind of Yirmiyahu. So, therefore, since imagination is the faculty which prophecy utilizes, and it's also the faculty which dreams utilize, therefore the Talmud was correct in relating those two ideas of dreams and prophecy. Okay, that's how Maimonides puts it. However, there are others, the Zohar, for example, and, and the Zohar, the central mystical tradition of Judaism, don't mess with the Zohar. So the Zohar um, actually says that, um, that a little bit more than that. The Zohar says that although we no longer have prophecy today, since the beginning of the Second Temple era, Jews have not experienced, we don't have prophets. The last of the prophets is that Malachi, for example, right, were at the beginning of the Second Temple era, approximately 2,600 years ago. Since that time, we don't have prophets. What do we have? Does God, has God ceased communicating with us? The answer is no. The Talmud says, and the Zohar says, that he communicates to what's called Batkol. What is Batkol? Batkol literally means a, an echo. Echo. Right. However, right, Batkol is understood in the Talmud as God communicating to us in other ways than prophecy. So okay, here's an example of a Batkol, which the Gemara gives. It's a very strange example. A certain rabbi was going to a gladiatorial game, and he was about to sit down in his seat. Did we speak about this last week? I don't remember. No. Okay. He was going to the Colosseum. So the Colosseum in Rome, I think he was in Rome, going to the Colosseum to see a gladiatorial game. The reason he's going to the gladiatorial game, obviously, is because they used to vote about the death of the people who were defeated. 
So if it was a Jew in the, uh, if it was a Jew there, the rabbis would make sure they'd go so they could vote. Uh, I, I forgot which one was which, but they would vote for him not to be killed. It wasn't like the rabbis were hanging out at the gladiatorial games because they enjoyed the UFC, right? This was a case of uh, saving of life. So they go to his now, and they had set seats there. He goes to his seat. A Roman, uh, the rabbi is about to sit down in his seat, and they actually had set seats there. And this Roman says, "Get out of my seat, Jew boy!" Right? And he pushes the rabbi out of the seat. And as the Roman sits down, a snake. That was, that was lying under the seat, uh, basically bait, bites the Roman and he keels over and dies. So the Talmud says, that is a butt call. That's a bus call. That's a voice from heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, what, what's a very strange example. How is God communicating there? So the answer the Talmud says is God was communicating the idea of Asamti Adam Tachtecha. I will place a person instead of you. In other words, I'll place someone in the place of danger instead of you. So in the days of prophecy, God would have just said that verse to the prophet. He would have said the prophet, In the days following prophecy, Hashem uh, speaks to us through other means. So that was one of the means. So that's called a butt call. It's an echo of prophecy, even though it's not real prophecy. Another, uh, one famous example. Sorry, yeah. So when, when he's saying that, then, that, then, then, the, then the, the Tana to whom it happened... Is supposed to relay that information to Amisro, or it's only yes. a personal thing? No, no, no. It's in the Talmud. That's he related to us. He relayed to us this idea. So it's a it's a buckhole that it's a communication. Another example of communication, uh, which is quite a famous example, happened just after the 1948 War of Independence in Israel, is what we call Goral Hagra, in which uh, the uh, which literally means the lottery of the Gaon of Vilna. It's not some type of lottery where you win, you know, whatever, you know, you, you buy a dollar ticket and you get to learn the Chavrusa with the Gro. Right, what it was is, basically, uh, you got a, a Bible, Tanakh, and one would open it at random, and then flip seven pages, and then go seven chapters, seven verses, and the verse you get to should be an answer to your question. So the, the, the famous case was, as you probably know, the Haganah, 1948, sent 36 soldiers to reinforce the Gush Etzion settlements uh, from Jordanian attack. On the way, they meet an elderly Arab. They decide not to kill him because he swears by Allah that he will not reveal the, the presence of the soldiers. They don't, one of the soldiers came back and told people this because he had hurt his ankle, so he came back to Jerusalem. So he had 35 soldiers left. Of course, immediately this Arab went and told all the villagers surrounding that there were Jews on the way, Jewish soldiers on the way to Gush Etzion, 35 of them. They were surrounded and attacked by thousands of Arabs from the villages in the region. They fought uh, till they had no ammunition left. They fought with stones and knives to the very end. They were massacred and their corpses were mutilated and buried in a common mass grave. After the 1948 armistice agreement with Jordan, uh, Israel negotiated that the chief rabbinate of the army would be able to disinter the bodies of these 35 martyrs and bring them to Israel for proper burial, which they did. And uh, they took them to be buried, and they had them each body in a coffin, but they couldn't identify the bodies. It was just not possible. They didn't have the ability to do DNA testing at those times. They didn't have uh, dental x-rays. They had no ability to identify the bodies. So Reb Arya Levin who was the very famous tzaddik of Yerushalayim. Reb Arya Levine and Reb Tzipesach Pesach Frank was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem at the time. Reb Arya Levine took a, a, a Tanakh, copy of the Bible, and he stood in front of each coffin and opened it up. And the verse he came to, 
that every single coffin had explicitly in it the name of one of the 35. Every single verse had the name of... If you, you can look at... There's a book called Sadiq in Our Time by Simcha Raz, biography of Ari Levine, has the verses. And there are newspaper articles about it from the time. He did it with the 34 coffins and identified each of them based on an explicit name of the soldier, either first or last name, right in the verse as he picked it up. Ruth Pesach Frank, the rabbi of Jerusalem at the time, uh, considered this, to certify this to be a halachically acceptable identification. And they were buried, and they remain, uh, remain buried there, the 35, the Lamed Hay. So that's called, Lamed Hay means the 35. Okay. Right? You see streets in Israel named after the Lamed Hay. So it's named after those 35, uh, 35 uh, boys who died, Al-Kiddush Hashem, trying to defend Jews. Anyway, so um, that's called a call. That's not prophecy, but it's a form of communication. So the commentaries say that God also will sometimes communicate through a dream. To whom does he communicate through a dream? So the Tanya says, a person, the majority of a person's dreams are vanity and falsehood. But, because his soul does not ascend while he's asleep. As it says, who will ascend? Who will ascend to the mountain of God? The person who is clean of hands and pure of heart. And it says, the forces of negativity attach themselves to his soul and inform him of rubbish, idle matters. He says, but someone who is totally focused on the truth continuously, as the Zahar says, a true tzaddik whose mind is always focused on the truth, such a person's dreams will also be focused on truth. Most of us who live to a great degree in a world of illusion, who are not continuously focused on truth, so the dreams will also mostly be rubbish. Right? So someone who is focused on the truth, that's what the Talmud means when it says his dreams will come through a malach, through an angel. What it means is there will be a certain amount of truth in those dreams. Uh, examples, there are numerous examples of this, um, but the, uh, a famous famous example is the Or HaChaim HaKadosh, Reb Chaim Ibn Attar, who you may have heard of, Or HaChaim on Chumash. Uh, so uh, you probably know that in Parshas Bechukhoisai, he wrote 42 different Perushim explanations of the first verse in the parasha. So uh, that's just a little background there. So um, it, it's relevant. He used to shecht an animal every Friday. And he used to give the money, the, the meat, to the poor for Shabbat. So one Friday, he slaughters the animal, and he uh, butchers it, etc. And he's prepared to distribute it to the poor. Turns out that the regular butcher, the two or three animals that he slaughtered for the use of the town, all of them turned out to be treif, non-kosher. They checked them, they all had some anatomical problem, and they were rendered not kosher. And so, people came to the Reb Chaim Ibn Attar to say, could you give us some meat? He said, I'm sorry, the whole animal is already designated for the poor. We already have a whole list of poor people who get the meat. I can't do it. So a wealthy guy came in at the same time as a poor Torah scholar. So the, uh, they, they both asked for meat. And Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar says to the wealthy man, look, I'm sorry, but the meat is designated for this man. He's poor. He gets it every Friday, goes to him. And, um, and uh, the rich guy says, what? This stupid idiot, this low life. I mean, he starts insulting the poor scholar. And Rabbi Chaim Ibn Attar didn't say anything. And the, the scholar didn't say anything. And the rich man did not get his meat. And the poor guy did get his meat. And that was it. That's right, Friday night. Reb Chaim gets a dream. 
In the dream, an angel tells him that he, not, he must, right after Shabbat, put himself into self-imposed exile. Because he listened, stood by while a scholar was being insulted and he didn't say anything in his defense. And for that, he must put himself in exile. So he goes, Saturday night, immediately after Shabbat, he goes into exile and starts wandering. And he wanders to another village far away. By the next week, he walks for a week. Friday afternoon, he turns up at the village. He introduces himself to someone at the shul, synagogue, and a guy says, well, come and stay at my house. You're a poor Jew. Come stay at my house. He doesn't know who he is. He invites him to his house. So he says, listen, after the Friday night meal, the rabbi of our synagogue is a great Kabbalist. And every Friday, he has a dream in which the heavenly academy tells him what they're discussing in heaven about the portion of the week. He says, so he's going to say it. So, yeah, Rukhain says, oh, cool, okay. So he goes to the synagogue, and the rabbi says, um, I would like to tell you 14 comments on the first verse of this week's parasha, given by Rabbeinu Chaim ibn Attar. So Rabbeinu, who's at the back of the shore, says, it's not Rabbeinu, it's Chaim. Now, no one knows who he is. They think he's, what, what they say, shh, no, chutzpah, shah. And the rabbi gives him a dirty look. And the host is very embarrassed. Same thing happens after lunch. The rabbi of the shul says, I had another dream. I heard another 14 comments on the first verse given by Harav HaGo'on, Reb Chaim Ibn Attar. So Chaim says, not Rav HaGo'on, it's Chaim, Chaim. So they get even, everyone's like, the host is going under the table. Every, anyway, after the third meal, the rabbi says, I have another 14 comments. I had in a dream from Reb Chaim in the Heavenly Academy. I'd like to say those. And again, he says, not Rav, it's just Chaim. At this point, Shabbos is already over. The rabbi says, right, I can't take it anymore. You are in Cherem, right? I'm putting you, in, put him into the prison. They used to have a little lock-up in the shul, quaint little custom, right? Great idea, I think, right? They, they put him in the lock-up there. Oh, a lot of people would actually, they'd be overcrowded, so whatever. Anyway, so he puts him in the lock-up next to the shul, and they make Havdalah. Right after Havdalah, this huge storm breaks out. Horrific, one of the worst storms they've ever seen in this place. The rabbi, before he goes to sleep, prays to God to give him an answer as to what's happening. He goes to sleep and he gets a dream. In the dream, the rabbi is told the reason for the horrific storm, he says, is because usually the souls that are punished at least are not punished on Shabbat. And after Shabbat, they go back to be punished. He says, however, Shabbat is not over because Reb Chaim ibn Attar has not made Havdalah the service of the termination of Shabbat. And you know why he has not made that service? And the rabbi says, nope. He says, because he's in your prison. He says, oh my God. Right, so anyway... He wakes up in a cold sweat, right? And he um, immediately takes Reb Chaim out of the prison and uh, Reb Chaim makes Havdalah, the storm dies out. That night, Reb Chaim sleeps in the rabbi's house and he has another dream. And in the other dream, God, uh, an angel tells him, okay, you have gained atonement for your sin. It's time to go back home. And he goes back home. That's a pretty wild story, right? It involves uh, no less than one two, three, I think four dreams, all of which were accurate dreams. But again, the, as the Zohar and the Tanya say, these type of dreams are only shown to someone who's focused totally on truth. And if you're focused on truth, your imagination focuses on truth. But it's interesting, the Talmud says, most dreams 
right, don't happen that way. They're, they're through shade or, in other words, the imagination. And they are things that you heard or thought about during the day. If you think about something during the day, very, very likely you'll tend to dream about it at night. The Talmud says that there was a Persian ruler, I think it was Persian, who said to the rabbis, I hear you guys are so brilliant. He says, tell me what I'm going to dream about tonight. So the rabbi starts a long, elaborate description of this particular king going to war, being captured by his enemies, being publicly humiliated, being put into captivity, tortured, etc. And he's really elaborate description. Guess what the guy dreams about that night? Duh. He dreams about being captured by the enemy. And the next morning he says, well, you rabbis really are smart. They are smart, but it wasn't because he knew what he was going to dream about. Right? He knew that Rov that most dreams follow here, Hurim, the, the thoughts that we have uh, during, the, during the day. And they come, out, they, come out at, uh, they come out at night. And it's interesting, there was a story told, the Chafetz Chaim, you know, there's a custom, if you have a dream that really disturbs you, we do what's called Hatavat Chalom. You go to three people who love you, if you can find three, whatever. You know. So you go to three people who love you, and you, you tell them, you're joking, really, I'm sure you have more. Right. So three people love you, and you tell them, I had this horrific dream, and they say, and they say this thing called, and they say to you, Chalma Tava Chazeta, you've seen a good dream. They may, sometimes you might tell it to them, they'll interpret it uh, well, but generally they just say it was a good dream. The people who love you, no, it was a good dream. I'm sure it has good connotations to make you, makes you feel better, etc. We'll say, we'll see that it may even have a, uh, it have an impact. But in any case, the Chafetz Chaim, Wakes up one morning, he, has a terrible, he had a terrible dream, he had a nightmare. He tells Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, his greatest student, he tells Rabbi Hanan, I had a terrible nightmare last night. He says, what was the nightmare? He said, I dreamt I was wealthy. I dreamt I was a multi-millionaire. I dreamt I was wealthy. So he said, I have to do a hatavat chalom. We have to, right, so he sits there. So now, interesting, most people, most people misunderstand this story. Most people understand the story in the following way. The Chavetz Chaim was horrified by the fact that he was rich. I don't think that's correct. And I heard by, uh, from a student of Rav Pam who heard from Rabbi Hanan Vassaman that that's not what the Chavetz Chaim was upset about. He wasn't upset that he was rich. If the Chavetz Chaim would have been rich, would that would have been good for people or bad? Would he have built the Chavetz Chaim Towers? Right? Radun, the Chavetz Chaim Casino? No, right? He would have... He would have benefited people who would have given the money to charity. He would have started another yeshiva. He would have saved Jews' lives. I mean, what, what's the problem? Chafetz Chaim being rich would be the best thing for everyone. Wouldn't be a problem, right? The challenge of wealth would not turn the Chafetz Chaim into some ego, maniacal, crazy guy with a huge hair, right? It wouldn't happen to him, right? So, uh, right? Rather, right, what bothered the Chafetz Chaim? You know what bothered the Chafetz Chaim? It's Rabbi Hanavasman said. He was bothered because he's evidently, I must have been thinking about being a millionaire during the day to have dreamed about it at night. That's what upset him. That's what he says, that's what I'm thinking about. Oh my gosh, that's a nightmare. In other words, it didn't bother him that he would be wealthy, but it bothered him that that's what his aspirations were. That he, th- he, he actually thought that, that he must have been thinking about it during the day. So actually, and this is, actually comes to one of the ideas behind a dream. The Gemara says... The Gemara says, Rav Yonatan said, a person is only shown in a dream the thoughts of his own heart. And the Zara puts it this way, uh, why is the person shown the thoughts and impulses of their own heart in order to rebuke that, curse, that person so that they will only think and imagine good things? So in that sense, what does the word chalom mean? 
You know, it's interesting, in Hebrew, a lot of words are phonetically related. What word is chalom phonetically and very closely related to? Chalom. Hachlama, which means healing. Close. But, but if, if, you know, as you pronounce it, it's almost, it's very hard to even hear the difference between the word chalom and between this other word I'm thinking of. Chalom. No. This is not, yeah, I know you're used to rabbis asking questions, which are trick questions. This is not a trick question, right? It almost sounds exactly the same as chalom, and it's chalon, which means window. Hello, right? Chalom means dream. Chalon. Oh, very good. Okay, fine. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I condemn the entire crowd. Okay, but no, but it works like this. So, so we have dreams. There are similar. There's first of all the word chalom, as you pointed out, actually is the same root as the word hachlama. In in Israel, if you go to a Beit hachlama, that means a rehabilitation place. You can see celebrities, etc. But no, rehab, it doesn't mean that. But hachlama means getting better. It means being healed. So one aspect of chalom is healing. And there's another aspect of chalom, which is chalon, which is a window. I think what it means is the following. The Zohar tells us that since the chalom, the dream, shows you what's going on inside. See, you can, you can see how you look in a mirror. You can go look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm still looking good. That type of thing, right? You can look at that in the mirror, right? And you can say, yes, right? Or you can say, oh my gosh, you've got to get rid of that, that type of thing, right? But how can you look into your soul, right? You look at a mirror, you don't see your soul, right? How do you know what's going on inside? How do you know what your hopes, aspirations, right, and desires are, where you're headed? The answer is, there's a window to the soul, and that's called a chalom, a dream, and very often, one of the ideas of the dream is, it shows you that's what you were thinking about, buddy. Right? And that's, what I'm saying. and that's what the Chafetz Chaim was bothered by. Chafetz Chaim was bothered by, here was a window to, I mean, it's un- inconceivable to me that he would have been aspiring to that. But okay, right, whatever it is, right, it was a window into the soul. So that's one idea, and that's why the Talmud says that if you don't dream, that's a bad sign. Because it shows they don't care about you upstairs. Right? Because Hashem cares about you. He's going to show you where you are. Right? What you're holding. Right? And that way I can improve. If I can't have a mirror, then I don't know if my hair is messed up. Right? So uh, if I don't have a mirror, a window, chalon, into the soul, I don't know where I'm messed up, what I'm relating to, where my imagination is holding. One second, right? And that is one of the reasons that we have this idea. The second aspect of that also is hachlama, which means healing. Where is the healing component of a dream? So there are some who say that, that trauma sometimes is healed when we actually dream about it. A person goes through traumas, they actually dream about it afterwards. It's actually a healthy uh, expulsion, so to speak, or working through of some of the problems with the traumas. The Garden of Vilnius has a very, very surprising explanation of a very bizarre-sounding statement in the Talmud. The Talmud says, Who is rich? So you're all familiar with Ethics of the Fathers, which says, who is rich? He who is happy with his lot. But there's a statement in the Talmud that says, who is rich? He who has a bathroom near where he eats. Okay, so maybe in the times of the Talmud, this made sense, right? It was not, it was a sign of wealth if a person had plumbing, 
any plumbing whatsoever, right? It was a sign of wealth that the plumbing was not far. You didn't have to slip out two miles to the field. Whatever, I won't get into the details here, but maybe that was a sign. But the guy in the villain says, no, 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 no. That's not what the Talmud means. He says the following. When we eat, much of what we eat, depending on our diet, but much of what we eat is solid, is waste, right? The body absorbs what it needs, the nutrients. It absorbs what it needs, and the rest is expelled from the body, which is a very good thing. Right? If the solid, if the waste was not expelled from the body, the person would get very sick. So Gardner of Vilna says, we walk around, our senses are continuously absorbing food for the brain, food for the soul, right? Aren't we? You walk around, it's impossible not to. What you see, you can't, right? You're seeing things continuously. You walk around, this billboard, that billboard, that picture, that picture. It's, it's unbelievable. Right? If you go to Manhattan, God forbid, right? it's even worse. Right? So you're continuously being assaulted Right, assaulted by crude, gross, right, corrupt stuff, horrific stuff, right, stuff which passes for art or advertising. I don't know, right. And then, in addition to which, you're also hearing things continuously. You walk by and you hear overhear a conversation. Most conversations you don't want to hear, right. People are on the cell phone, on the bus, or something like that. That's right, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, she wants to die. Just hold the pillow down over her. Yes, it's not going to be a problem, that type of thing, right? Or what, you're kidding? That's what they had in the blood test? Do I have that too? And I go, oh my God, right? You, know, these, you don't want it, but you're hearing things all the time on the cell phones. Not only that, you're sitting in the subway and you could be 30 feet away from someone and they've got a tiny iPod that big and earphones you can barely see and yet I can hear every obscenity from Snoop Doggy Dog, right? <laughs> From 30 feet away. I don't want to hear this. Right? I feel like going and, and, and hurting this person physically. Right? So, but, so we are continuously, the Garden of Vilna, I'm loosely translating, where it says we are continuously absorbing garbage. Much of what, some of what we get is good stuff. Information, factual information, inspiration, words of Torah, words of comfort, love, etc. Good stuff. Sometimes we see things which are amazing, right? Uh, you know, we see this beauty of the beauty of the world that Hashem created, right? Uh, unbelievable stuff. You can see a lot of great things. However, what do we do with all the solid, the waste product? That, the Garden of Vilna says, that's a, re- a wealthy person. Someone who is in a situation where they're somehow they can get rid of the garbage. And one of the ways that we get rid of the garbage is the dream. That what we absorb during the day, to a certain degree, the dream gets rid of it. There's a hachlama, there's a healing process in the dream in that it gets rid of some of the waste stuff that we, were do- that, that, that we absorb during the day. And that is, that is a very, very important aspect of it. Uh, I'll take questions later, but I got, I got, I'm not going to finish. Yeah. Uh, well, that's even worse. Right, but okay, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. The dream is the, the window to the soul. But it's, oh, there's expression of the eyes being the window to the soul, and people have REM, you know, rapid eye movements when they're dreaming. Right. So maybe there's a... That, that could be, could be. Could be. So there's this idea, therefore, that it's, it's a hachlama, it's healing in two ways. Number one, the trauma is being, is being somehow worked out inside and being expunged in the form of the dream. And number two is also the solid, the waste products of our senses that we absorb during the day are somehow being expelled during the, during the dream. Now, um, it's also interesting, the Talmud says that kol hachalomot holchin achar hapeh that the dream, the, the interpretation of the dream 
is very important. Not only is it very important, but the Talmud seems to imply that the interpretation of the dream actually affects the outcome of the dream. And it gives some examples, some very strange examples of that, about, two, about a rabbi who told his dream to two different dream interpreters. Right, The Chaldeans were very into dream interpretation. We know in Egypt, heavily into it, there's a book of the dead which has dream interpretation and stuff like that, which is why Yosef became so famous for interpreting dreams. It was an intrinsic part of Egyptian culture, what was happening in the dreams. He was very famous for that. But what's interesting is, the Talmud actually learns from Joseph, from the case of Yosef, it says, Kasher Patar, as he interpreted, so it became. The implication of that is that it was because he interpreted it that way, that's why it came that way. So that the interpretation seems to be the thing that, that makes the dream so. What, what is the understanding of that? That's a very strange idea. So there's two ideas here. First and foremost is that um, since the, uh, Zohar says this, it says since the dream contains elements of both truth and falsehood, because all dreams have elements of both in them, almost all dreams. He says, therefore, the word of the interpreter is the one that is going to decide. Because you see, dreams are not going to be... The future is not determined. We believe that such a thing is free will. My future is not determined. So that means if I have a dream about something happening in the future, that cannot be that that's predetermined. It's got to be dependent on free will. Where does free will come into it if I have a, a dream about the future? The answer is, when it's interpreted... And I say, oh yes, that makes sense to me. Only when the person who has the dream agrees with the interpretation and, under- and says, yeah, that fits in, which is what happened with Pharaoh. Right? All the various people came to Pharaoh with their interpretations and only when Yosef came with his interpretation did Pharaoh say, that's it. Because, you know, there are sometimes a person who says, I think it means this, I think it means that. You can hear a whole bunch of different interpretations and one person says something and then suddenly you feel, oh yeah. That's it. So what's happening here? What's happening here is it's your free will has now decided your future. Your free will has decided your future. Because the dream doesn't come directly from the world of prophecy. It comes from a lower world, which is the world where there's free will. So therefore, since the dream could have a number, it must be that it has a number of possibilities. And if it has a number of possibilities, what determines the outcome? Determines the outcome is human free will. And whose free will determines it? Your own. Because we are the masters of, so to speak, our own free will. That's one possibility. There's another possibility also, which is the following. That inasmuch as the human was created, as the Torah describes it, in the image of God, but selim elokim, baraita adam, and what that is understood as meaning by Maimonides and others is, it obviously doesn't have visual connotation. We don't believe God has a nose and glasses, right? Rather, what it means is we are similar to God. We have similar capacities to God. He created us with similar powers. Just as God is a creator, the human being is a creator. Just as God has will, freedom of will, the human being is given freedom of will. Just as God created, how did God create the world? With the power of speech. Right? Baruch Piv. Right, by the words of God were the heavens made, or Baruch Piv, and the spirit of his mouth called Sva'am all of their hosts. Right, Laolam Hashem, God, your word is what stands in heaven. Meaning your words, so to speak, coalesced into the reality that we see today. Baruch Sha'omar, we say in our prayers, blessed is he who said, the Hayah Olam, and the world became. 
So it was God's statement that created. So therefore, he gave also the same or a similar capacity to the human being that the power of our speech can create realities. That's one of the reasons, one of the reasons that in Jewish tradition we are very, or we should, be very, very careful about how we speak. We try not to say negative things. We try not to say uh, expressions, uh, you know, like, I mean, I, you know, my parents were always very careful. Like, if, if I say something, oh, this is killing me, right? Don't say that, right? Don't say that, right? I will kill you, right? Don't say that, right? And, and uh, you are dead. That type of thing. We try not to say that type of stuff. Why? Because we believe that speech has power. Speech creates reality, right? I mean, just on a simple... On the, on the crudest level, obviously, speeches can create horrific realities. Look at, the, look at the Second World War and the Holocaust, right? How much of that was created by speeches? By one man with his speeches, right? Unbelievable. Kristallnacht, right? I remember I was in Vienna uh, a month and a half ago with a group of students, gateways, and, and we're standing at the Habsburg Palace, which is a magnificent, magnificent, beautiful, beautiful architecture, and I was standing there and I was saying, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And I'm looking at this beautiful balcony overlooking the square with these massive gates of the Habsburg Palace. And I'm saying, the balcony looks really familiar. And the tour guide says, yes, this is where Hitler stood when he gave the speech that sparked off Kristallnacht. It was on this balcony. Beautiful, isn't it? I say, yeah, it's actually, it type of lost a little bit's luster, right? I wasn't admiring, but you know, but Europe is a lot like that. It's a beautiful building. It says, oh yes, that's where this program, you know, it's type of like, Europe is like that. Anyway, but, but the power of speech, but the power of speech, not only that, but we believe that even more than that, it can actually create a reality. Observation. We know in physics, observation affects reality. The observer affects the reality of what's being observed. So not only that, but we believe our speech also affects that reality. So therefore we say the dream follows the speech, right? Because the power of creation and the power of, God forbid, destruction has been given to the human being. And just as God's creativity is through his power of speech, so the human being has been given that incredible, that incredible power of, uh, that incredible power of speech. There's another aspect of the chalom, which is that it will also be sometimes your conscience. It'll be telling you what your conscience is telling you something. There's a story which is brought, I don't remember, uh, it's, it's brought one of the commentaries, Tractate of Zarah, where it talks about the discussion about a certain fish being kosher or not. So the following story is told by one of the Rishonim, i.e. medieval scholars, we're talking about 11th, uh, 10th, 11th century, 12th century scholar. Says the following: A certain rabbi was asked about a certain fish. Is this fish kosher? And um, it was a new species that was just uh, that fishermen had just started uh, getting. And uh, and he, he thought about it and he examined it and he said, yeah. He said in a speech in the synagogue that in fact this fish was kosher. That night he gets a dream. In the dream, in the dream, um, a Eliyahu Anovi, Elijah the prophet, comes to him. I don't know how he knew it was Elijah. He could be at the baseball cap, Elijah the prophet, whatever, I don't know what. But he sees someone who was clear to him was Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Novi. And he's carrying a beautiful, ornate silver tray with a silver cover on the tray. Eliyahu. And so this man, this rabbi, says, Shalom Alecha Rebbe. Peace be unto you, Rebbe Umoiri, my teacher and my master. And um, 
Rebbe, it's how you're supposed to greet your whatever, you know, your, the, the person you learnt most of your Torah from, Rebbe. So he says, Shalom Aleicha Rebbe Yomori. So Eliyahu Anavi says, can I do something for you? He says, can I do, can you, can the Rav do something for me? Can I do something, Rebbe? He says, no. So Elijah Prophet says, would you like to eat something? And he says, thank you. And so Elijah approaches with this beautiful tray. He takes off the cover and underneath it, there is a wreathing, horrific heap of, of, of bugs and worms and creepy crawlies, like in this, like, something out of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom type thing. You know, remember that? Anyway, so it's like, ugh, it's, ugh. And he looks at this, and he says, and this rabbi yells, Tommy, 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 right? It's impure, it's impure. Ah, right? And he's a horrific. And Elijah says to him, oh, really? Is this more impure than the fish that you said was okay today? And he disappears. Right? So what was that? So the rabbi then looked back into the issue and decided that the fish was not kosher. Now the truth of the matter is, halachically speaking, you are not allowed to make a halachic decision based on a dream. Not allowed to. Right? Halacha has to be based on the intellect and the senses. Why did he... But the answer is, you see, he didn't base his halachic decision on the dream. He reversed the decision because he looked into it even more than he, he put more effort into it and he found out that the truth is that it was not kosher. What was the dream? The dream was his conscience coming to him and saying, you know what, you're a little quick to permit that. A little quick. Not that permitting things is bad, on the contrary. Right? Uh, two famous rabbis in Warsaw. One was famous for being strict and stringent. And the other was famous for being lenient. They met each other at Kaporis, right? Erev Yom Kippur, the eve of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. So the rabbi who was very stringent said to the rabbi who was very lenient, he said, you should have a good Yom Kippur. You probably need it with all these leniencies. And he said, what do you mean? Why should I? It doesn't bother me. He said, what do you mean? He says, listen, he says, if you are too strict, if I am strict, if I am lenient on a kashrut question, when I should be strict... So that's a sin between myself and God. He says, sins between me and God, Yom Kippur takes care of. But if you're stringent when you shouldn't be, and that means you're wasting people's money, and that's a sin between you and another person, and Yom Kippur doesn't help one iota for that. He says, so you should be worried, not me. So he wasn't bothered by the fact that he permitted it. It's okay to permit. In fact, it's good to permit. Right? However, if you have legitimate reason to do so. However, it was his conscience was coming and saying, you know what, you didn't give this enough thought. This was not enough. And that was Elijah, the prophet, coming to him in the dream. Right? Sometimes, famous stories of dreams um, that, uh, that I'll, I'll you know, end with this one, almost the end. But uh, in Prague, uh, there, was a, there was a famous emperor called Rudolf. Emperor Rudolf was a little crazy, and that means he was good for the Jews. In as much as he was a little crazy, he was into all types of, he was into mysticism and alchemy, and he was interested in almost everything, and so it was not so bad. Anyway, but the church, as usual, was pressuring him to expel the Jews from Prague, which happened many times. So Rudolf has a dream. He's about, he's going to sign the expulsion degree, the next, decree the next day. He has a dream. In the dream, he dreams that he went hunting in the forest. And, he, and while he was hunting by himself, he went swimming in a lake. And some thieves stole his clothes. So he comes out of the lake, 
He's wandering around the forest. He, lo- he he's, he's disorientated. He bumps into something, loses consciousness. He wakes up. He doesn't know where he is. Right? He's wandering around. He's filthy. His you know his nails are long. He's grown a beard. Like it's unbelievable. He goes he goes from village to village, and of course he tells people. He says, "I am Emperor Rudolph." They say, "Get out of here, crazy nutcase!" Whatever you know. They, they throw him some rags, and he's anyway. He knocks on the door of one house, and this distinguished man with a beard and a yarmulke opens the door, and he says, "Yes." He says, I'm Emperor Rudolph. And he says, I know. Come in. He invites him in. And this man looks like this rabbi. He trims the fingernails of Emperor Rudolph. He cuts his hair. He trims his beard. He bathes him. He heals his wounds. He feeds him. And he takes him back to Prague, where he is reinstated as king. Anyway, this is the dream. In the morning, he wakes up from the dream. He wakes up in the morning. He says, whoa, that was a weird dream. And he looks next to his table on the side of his bed. And there's a tray with long cut fingernails, fingernail clippings on it, and filthy braids of hair on it. And he's saying, whoa. Anyway, he says, so he tells his advisors, who is the greatest rabbi of Prague? And they say, the Maharal. So he says, I want to meet him. So Maharal comes to meet Emperor Rudolf, a very famous meeting. He sees the Maharal, and as soon as the Maharal walks into the room, he recognizes him. He says, he's the guy in the dream. And he says... And he says to the Maharal, he says, you know, I had this dream. How can I repay you? And he says, don't expel the Jews. So that was the story that is given of the, the Emperor Rudolf. I have a friend in Yeshiva, in Itri, uh, who's now a rabbi in Cleveland. And uh, he was going out, he was on Shiduchim. And he was having a rough time. Surprise. Anyway, so uh, he was having a rough time, he was on Shiduchim. And it was not not pleasant experience for some reason. And... Um, he decided he was already like, I don't know, I don't know how old he was, 22, 20, 23, 24. He decided he's going to take off a year. Forget it. He's not going to do anything for the year except for learn. He's not going to go any shidduchim for a year. Take a break. That night he has a dream. In the dream, one of the rabbis there, by the name of Yossel Seinvert, who's a very great tzaddik, he's a rebbe at Shabin, which is the top Hasidish shiva in the world, and he's also a teacher at Orsamach for Israelis, and he's also a rebbe at one of the good top Litvashi yeshivas. So he's a very multifaceted man, and he has a, he's a rebbe who has a tish Friday nights in Mashar. So Yossel Seinvert, a very holy man. So he has a dream that Yossel Seinvert comes to him in the dream and says, listen, he says, it's the wrong decision. You should go out again. should not take off. You should, st- you should continue trying. And uh, he says, all right. Anyway, the next day, this guy goes to Rav Yossel Seinfeld and he says, he says, oh, look, I had, the, I had a dream. He says, anyway, I wanted to know if I should continue going out. So Rav Yossel says, I already told you. <laughs> he says, okay. <laughs> so he decided, so the next shidduch he was offered, he took it, and he's married to her now, and they have uh, a number of children, and they're living in Cleveland. So anyway, you never know. I don't want you to get the impression, the reason I started the class with my words of warning was a person should not be overly reliant upon dreams. But there can be sometimes dreams which are significant, and really the way we, but but all dreams are helpful. All dreams are going to help you. They're either going to help you see what you're focused on, what your aspirations are, where you're holding, so to speak, right? It's like a mirror into your soul, a window into the soul to know where you're holding. Number two, they're going to be hachlama, healing. That means they get rid of all the garbage we absorb during the day, all the stupid things that we imagine and absorb with our senses, and it's going to get rid of them, as the Garden of Vilna puts it. Right? In addition, they're healing in the sense of getting rid of the traumas. 
And finally, they may sometimes have messages which are significant to us. Right? And however, we should also know that none of them ever remove our free will. Our free will is always something which is overrides what there is in the dream. And that's why the interpretation and what we say overrides the dream. But again, on a practical level, one of the things we have to learn from here is just to be careful what we say about our dreams and what we interpret about other people's dreams. Oh my God, you dreamt that? It's doom, right? It's not a good thing to say, right? You should not do that, right? But indeed, those are some of the ideas about dreams from the Zaire, from the Talmud, and from the Tanya and other sources. And uh, thank you for listening. And that's it for this evening. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Pleasure.